Well, good morning. It's great to see you, those who are online. Thanks for letting us be with you this morning. We're in this fourth week of this starting point series, and the premise of this entire series is that faith has a starting point. And you know this, every, everything has a starting point. You had a starting point. Your parenting had a starting point. Your career, your education had a starting point. And how something starts usually determines how well it goes from that point forward. But something we don't normally or typically think about is that faith has a starting point as well. And not for all of us, but for many of us, it started somewhere in childhood. From a conversation with a pastor or a parent or, you know, something we heard at vacation Bible school or in a sermon or in mass. You know, you know these, these foundation starting points that God is loving. You know, God is great. God is good. God answers your prayers. God's always there. God heals. God, God provides. And of course we believed all that because we're the same people who believed in Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy and the Easter Bunny. But fast forward a few years later, maybe in high school or after high school and college or maybe you got out of college and had a kid or after you got married or after your kids moved out of the house, many of us found ourselves with, confronted with realities that our childhood faith had not prepared us for. We found ourselves confronted with pain and hardship, death, bankruptcy. Unanswered prayers, despair, miscarriages, cancer, abuse, a good argument by a college professor, divorce. And a gap was formed. A gap was formed between what we're experiencing and, and what we believed as children. And as a result, some of us lost faith. Some of us abandoned faith. Some of us left our faith behind. Not, not because we necessarily wanted to, but because there was, a, in our estimation, irreconcilable differences between what we were taught and the questions of life, the pressures of life, the realities of life, and the hardships of life. Well, something I've just observed over and over and over and seen over and over throughout the years is that the, is that the starting point for faith it changes everything. The right starting point for faith, it really does change everything, but the wrong one does too. And I think one of the reasons that people abandon faith, lose their faith, become disinterested in faith, question their faith, is simply because they didn't have the right starting point. So we decided to do this series and hit the restart button by asking the question, what would it look like to wipe the slate clean and start all over as it relates to faith? I mean, what's the right starting point for faith? faith, particularly the quote-unquote Christian faith. Now, if, if, if you're interested in starting faith in Jesus, or if you're interested in restarting or reigniting your faith in Jesus, if you're interested in growing in faith in Jesus, I think this series is so important for you. Because with the right starting point, your faith can withstand the pressures and the realities of life. With the right starting point, your faith can grow stronger through whatever season of life that you find yourself in. See, the right starting point doesn't remove all questions. It doesn't remove all doubts, but with the right starting point, you're able to stand firm in, in your faith in the midst of those questions and in the midst of your doubts. And with the right starting point, I think, and I've seen, God work through that to transform you more into everything he's created you to be. Now, I say this every week, one thing is, that, you know, this series builds on each other, and all the pieces of this series work together. So if you miss any, missed any of the first three weeks, it's important you have all those pieces of this as we're on the starting point journey. So go back and watch, watch those first three if you missed, if you missed any of those, because I just don't have time to review everything we talked about, obviously, in the first three weeks. Today, though... Today, we're, we're going to talk about something that's so vital when it comes to having the right starting point for faith. And it's actually something that we've all experienced some tension around somewhere along the way. And that is the rules. Woo! 
and you know this, like practically speaking in every faith system, there are rules. Like the Muslims have, you know, five pillars of Islam. The Jews have the Mosaic Law. Buddhists, they have their principles. Catholics have the Sacred Sacraments. Protestant Christ followers have the Great Commission and the Great Command. And the interesting thing within Christianity, what makes it so confusing is that each group, you know, Presbyterians and Methodists and Baptists, you know, they all have their own subset of rules. I and mean, let's be honest real quick. The, the, rules, the, the rules are what have made some of you not even want to start faith in Jesus. Some of you walk away from faith in Jesus. And some of you abandon your faith in Jesus. I mean, some of you grew up in a home where the rules made you question if God was even a good and loving God. For others of you, the rules that you grew up with that made you feel judged because you were then ostracized by your faith community or by your church after you broke the rules. And, and you know this. I mean, the, the truth is, the rules in general, they run contrary to human nature. And that's a problem when it comes to faith because in every faith system, there are rules. For some of you, the inconsistency in the way that you've seen Christians apply their own rules have made you think that we're all hypocrites. I've got some news to break to you. We are all hypocrites. But you are too. Because on some level, we're all guilty of being hypocrites because we all look for loopholes in every single rule. I mean, think about when you drive your car, right? We, most of us would say we, you know, value being law-abiding citizens. And then we get in our cars, and the speed limit says 35, and we're like, loophole. We know we can go 40, 41 and not get a ticket, right? We all look for loopholes. It's no different when it comes to the rules within any faith system. We look for the loopholes. Catholics found a way to justify the use of birth control. Uh, only a small percentage of Muslims, you know, pray with their face down to the ground five times a day. Followers of Christ justify not loving certain people just the way that Christ first loved us. In every faith system, there's rules. There's, you know, rules for, that define proper and improper behavior. But the reality of it is, is no one seems to be able to follow all the rules or even wants to follow all the rules. And if we're being honest, the rules are what we rebel against. It's why part of, it's part of why some of you left faith, why some of you decided not to go back to church, why some of you don't even want to start faith. So today we're going to talk about what's with all the rules, like, what's the relationship between the rules, uh, the, the rules of God, and a God who created, who loves, and who cares for us? Like, what roles do rules play? What role do rules play when it comes to the starting point for faith in Jesus? Well, to start answering that question, something I think is important and maybe never considered, but it is important to understand, is that rules always assume a relationship. Rules always assume relationship. Like wherever you have rules, there's always some kind of relationship. In any sphere where you're accountable to a set of rules, you're in some kind of relationship. The only difference is what role those rules play. To, to help us understand this, I made up a few categories. You probably have some better categories than this, but here's the ones that, that I have for this morning. The first category is the, the family model, the family model of rules. And in this model, you're born into the family and then your parents make the rules. They didn't make the rules for you to become part of the family. You were already part of the family and then your parents made the rules. The interesting thing with this is parents only set rules, we only set rules for our own kids. Like we don't set rules 
for our neighbor's kids. We'd like to set rules for our neighbor's kids, but we don't set rules for their kids. We don't set, like one of the rules in my house with our kids is before they go to bed, they have to plug their devices into our room. So their iPhone, their iPad, their eye stuff, they got to plug it all into our room. And so, you know, at 9 o'clock at night, we're like, hey, girls, have you guys plugged your devices in? No. And they come in, they plug their devices in, and then they, then they, go, then they go to bed. We don't want their devices in their room. But at 9 o'clock at night, I don't call the neighbors and go, hey, uh, can you put Jackson on the phone? Cool. Hey, Jackson, did you plug in your device before you went to bed tonight? No, I don't do that because Jackson's not my kid. I don't make the rules for Jackson. Like, we make the rules for our children. Our, our children are our, our, our children before we have any rules for them. Rules don't make them a part of the family. The rules are there because they're already part of the family. Then the family model, relationship precedes rules. And then we have the club model. And this model... Your willingness to adopt or agree to a set of rules creates the relationship. I mean, when you join a health club or a company or a fraternity or sorority, you, 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 know, you sign a contract that you, or you verbally agree to a contract to abide by the rules. And agreeing to the rules is, how you, is really how the relationship is established. It's how you get in the relationship. And then keeping the rules is how you stay in the relationship. I mean, breaking the rules can result in termination. It can result in removal of the relationship. Uh, this, you know, a couple months ago at my gym, uh, I got a letter, actually an email from my gym that asked me to uh, be l more quiet at the gym <laughs> and not grunt as much. And if I didn't stop, they would remove my relationship with them. Super excited about that email. So I'm going to start a gym of my own and see how they like. I'm just... In the club model, the rules are how you get in a relationship and how you stay in a relationship. And then there's this one, the neighborhood association model. And, yeah, uh. and the rela in a relationship with the neighborhood association is established the moment you bought that house. The relationship, and that relationship, you didn't choose it, but you just got it once you bought the house. And it came with a set of rules attached to them. And if you don't follow them, if you put the trampoline in the wrong spot, you paint your house the wrong color, you, made the, you did a six-foot fence, you only can do a four-foot fence, they, they, don't, they don't kick you out. They just send you nasty notes until you adhere to the rules. They can't make you move, they can, but they can treat you in a way that made you wish you lived somewhere else. Now, the point of all this is that rules assume a relationship. Whenever and wherever there are rules that you're accountable to, you're in a relationship of some sort. Those two things, rules and relationship, go together. Now, if you take these ideas and you transpose them into faith in Jesus, you can see why this is so dang confusing. Because which one is it? I mean, which model best reflects the connection between rules and relationship with God? Is it the family model? Where the rules, they don't get you in relationship with God, but once you are in relationship with God, then there are some rules. And rules don't keep you in that relationship, and they don't take you out of that relationship. The rules are for your benefit, and when you disobey those rules like a good and loving parent would, he disciplines you because he loves you. Is that what it is? Or is it like the club model? where you have to agree to a set of rules in order to get into this relationship with God, and, and obeying them is how you stay in a relationship with God. And if you break them, uh -uh, you're out. Or is it like the neighborhood association model, where you're just automatically in a relationship with God just because, just because you were born, and he can't kick you out, but he can treat you bad, and he can guilt you to death until you change your life, and you never know where you stand with him. When you break the rules, 
Now, right now, some of you are thinking theologically. Others, you are, others of you are thinking emotionally because of what you felt, because of what you experienced. Like, you were, you were taught the family model, but you felt like the neighborhood association model. Or you were taught the club model, and you never far, felt a part of a family. So which one is it? When it comes to starting point of faith in Jesus, you've got to sort that all out. Because it will determine the way you view God and the way that you assume he views you. You've got to sort this all out because it will determine how you answer questions like, what does God expect of me? How do I get in? How do I stay in? When am I in? And when am I out? And how am I supposed to know? Well, to help sort this all out, we're actually going to go back to one of the oldest set of rules given by God. We call it now the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are arguably the most, you know, famous list of rules ever produced. And just about everyone in, you know, Western civilization are familiar that the Ten Commandments exist. However, few people can name ten of them. Like if I was like, hey, what are the Ten Commandments? You'd be like, ah, mm. Don't steal. I think there's something about don't sleep with someone else's wife. Maybe something. I can get, I got two or three. Like, that's all I got. So we know there's ten of them. We know they exist, but none of us know what the ten are. And then few people even know where they're at in the Bible. Like, if I handed you a Bible and I said, turn to the Ten Commandments, you'd be like, you know, you're like, I don't know where to go. So I want to just teach you so that you got this. So Ten Commandments in our Bible, they're found in Exodus 20. Let's say that out loud together. Here we go. One, two, three. You're going to look super smart to your friends, so go tell them that's, that's, where, the, that's where they're found. So Ten Commandments, they're, they were supposedly given by God to ancient Israel in about 1446 B.C., so about 1,500 years or so before the life of Jesus. Now, the most significant thing for our discussion today is not the commandments themselves. What makes them important when it comes to the starting point for faith is whom they were given to, why they were given, and when they were given. But before we get into that, I just got to go back to a few things that we talked about over the last couple weeks. If you remember, if you weren't here, a couple weeks ago, we talked about that none of us are mistakers. Like it's bigger than that. It's uglier than that. We talked about whether or not we want to admit it or not, we're all in fact sinners. And we discovered that Jesus talked about sin in a very different way. He talked about sin in a very interesting way. See, when Jesus talked about sin, he talked about it in the context of relationship. And the point Jesus continually made over and over and over again was that sin is such a violation against God that it breaks relationship with him. Sin is such a violation against holy creator God and has created intent for us, has created will for us, that it breaks relationship, our relationship with him. And then last week, you know, we, we looked at the introduction of sin into the human experience, into, into, the, into the world, and left God in somewhat of a dilemma. Like, do I destroy this sin-infected world, or do I roll up my sleeves and get to work fixing it? Like, do I leave them helpless and hopeless, and the reason they're helpless and hopeless is their own dang fault? Or do I get involved and find a starting point for cleaning up the mess that they all created because of their sin? And then we talked about because of God's amazing love, because of God's amazing grace, instead of walking away, he waded into the mess. He chose to wade into our mess and begin the task of restoring the effects of our sin. But where would he begin? How would he begin the cleanup process? How would he begin restoring the relationship? I mean, God had to start somewhere, 
But instead of starting in a particular place, we saw last week that he began the cleanup process with one particular man named Abraham. And Abraham's story begins, you know, is about 1876 B.C., so about 18, 1900 years before the life of Jesus. We saw last week, so cool, how God promised Abraham a child and then that his descendants would become a great nation. He said to Abraham, hey, Abraham, I'm going to establish a nation through you, and through that nation, I will begin restoring humanity's relationship with me. Now, this promise, as we saw last week, this was so hard for Abraham to believe. So hard for him to believe because Abraham had no children and Abraham was really old and Abraham's wife Sarah was well beyond childbearing years. And that's why when we looked at one of the most, it's so amazing when we looked at one of the most important and most, one of the most powerful statements in the entire Bible and it's in the story of Abraham and it's in Genesis 15. We saw this last week after God promised this and it just didn't seem possible, it's, Writer Genesis says, Abraham believed, which means he trusted, he had confidence in, he relied on. Abraham believed the Lord, and he, God, credited it, it, Abraham's trust, to him, Abraham, as righteousness. Abraham goes, okay, I trust you. I trust you are who you say you are, and that you will do what you promised to do, even though All the evidence points to the contrary. And through that one single expression of trust, God credited Abraham with righteousness. Meaning a right standing with him, which resulted in a restored relationship with him. Not because Abraham was already righteous, he wasn't. He was a sinner just like you and me. And not because any of the rules that he had followed. This was a gift from God. A gift that God credited to him because of trust alone. So last week we looked at the takeaway in regards to the starting point for faith that we learned from Abraham's story is that a right standing with God starts with trust alone. So picking up where we left off last week, eventually Abraham and Sarah had a son. And they named him Isaac. And Isaac ended up having a son named Jacob, who God later renamed Jacob to Israel. Jacob ended up having 12 sons whose families became large tribes, and they became collectively known as the Hebrew people. And then through a crazy series of events, in order to escape a famine, the Hebrew people migrated to Egypt, where they were eventually enslaved by Pharaoh for four Hundred devastating years. I mean, for 400 years, the Hebrew people were treated harsh. The Hebrew people were treated cruel. But it was also during those 400 years of slavery where they grew into a great nation. And they became known as the nation of Israel, who, by the way, later became known as the Jews. During 400 years of slavery, the Israelite nation would tell stories to each other of Abraham and the promises that God gave to him about them. And many of them had a hard time believing it because they were slaves. And there was a gap that was created between what they were taught and what they were experiencing. And this gap, and in this gap, they started to lose hope. And throughout those entire 400 years, God kept saying to them, 
Trust me. Trust me. And then in about 446 B.C., about 1,500 years before the events of Jesus, God selects a Hebrew named Moses to free the Israelite nation. And Moses goes to them and and says, I am going to lead you out of slavery, and we're going to return to the land that God promised Abraham. And I imagine they look back at him and go, how is that even possible? Like, I get it, we're a large number now, but we're a slave, we're, we're a slave nation. Egypt is a powerful army, and Pharaoh is like a god. Well, through Moses, God once again said, said, said there was just one thing he wanted them to do, and that was trust me. Just trust me. Like, I know it's hard to believe. Like, God's message for you is simply, trust me, trust me, trust me. And they did. And, and what God did in response to that, to get Pharaoh to concede, to, to free the Israelites, can only be described as supernatural. Moses ends up leading the nation of Israel out of Egypt, and they were free. And they'd done nothing to deserve it. They'd simply trusted. And then three weeks later, On their journey back toward the land that God promised Abraham years and years before, God gave the nation of Israel their first set of laws, which came to be known as the Law of Moses or the Mosaic Law. And part of that law was the Ten Commandments. And where do you find the Ten Commandments? Exodus 20. Very good. Now, I'm going to read the the prelude or the intro to the Ten Commandments because in these two verses, we get a valuable and major insight into the connection between God's rules for the nation and his relationship with the nation. these, These two verses, we get valuable and major insight into which comes first, the relationship or the rules. Now, many people are surprised to discover that the Ten Commandments don't even begin with a command. Here's how, here's how they begin. And God spoke all these words to Moses and the Israelite nation. I am the Lord, your God. Did you catch it? God began by announcing his relationship with the Israelites before he gave them one single command. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And guys, come on, this is so huge as we piece all these, as we, you know, piece all this together. I am the Lord, your God, who did something significant for you without requiring anything from you first. I am the Lord, you, your God, who sent you a deliverer, who sent you Moses when you had given up All hope. I am the Lord your God who did something spectacular for you and you did nothing to earn it. And you did nothing to deserve it. So before we get to all the rules, let's be clear on one thing. You are my people and I am your God. Only after first defining and affirming their relationship did God say, Now, now. There are some things I want you to do as you learn to live as my people together. And here was his first command to them. It's the only command we're going to look at. You shall have no other gods before me. I mean, after God proving himself trustworthy to the Israelite nation, the first thing he instructed them to do in return was to continue to trust him as their ultimate authority, as their ultimate provider, as their only God. 
I mean, this is so significant. God declared his relationship with the nation before telling them what was required. The point being this. The Ten Commandments were confirmation of, not a condition of, Israel's relationship with God. It wasn't, hey, I'm going to give you ten, and if you do, then you're in. Then you're my people. And it wasn't, hey, I'm going to give you ten, and if you mess up five, then you're out. Neither Abraham nor Israel obeyed their way into a relationship with God. And try as they might, they couldn't disobey their way out. The relationship was not conditional based on the rules. And it didn't have to be that way. It could have been completely conditional. This is important. 1,500 years before Jesus, God made it clear to the Israelite nation, I am your God. You are my people and you did nothing to earn it. You did nothing to deserve it. This relationship was established because of my grace and your trust alone. And now that we've established it, I want to teach you how to live together under my authority as your perfect heavenly father. Now, what you would see if you picked up, if you picked up the Bible, a Bible and read through the Hebrew Scriptures that we called an Old Testament, the Old Testament, what you would see over and over and over again is the people of Israel, the Israelite nation, they broke the rules again and again and again and again. And they broke the rules every time they began not to trust God. And what you would see is when they broke the rules, God didn't kick them out. Instead, he disciplined them. It's like he put them in timeout as their father. I'm going to put you in timeout until you trust me again. He could have kicked them out, but he refused to give up on them even when they gave up on him. I mean, throughout the history of the nation of Israel, through, through, you know, throughout the Hebrew scriptures leading up to Jesus affirms one thing. With God, relationship precedes rules. God did not give the Israelite rules as a means by which to establish a relationship with them. From a, the very beginning, God opted for the family model, the parent model. The people of Israel were his children, and he was their God. Now, the big idea of me kind of giving you all that history in regards to, you know, the right starting point for faith is this. Rules are a confirmation of, not a condition of, a relationship with God. Rules are a confirmation of, not a condition of, a relationship with God. God is our perfect heavenly Father who only gives rules to those who are already in a relationship with Him. Now, if that's true, if that's true, that's Staggering. If God's relationship with Israel is a model for us, it's staggering. It's staggering because it shows that those who have a relationship with God can rebel and be disobedient, and God keeps coming back over and over and over and over again to discipline. And his discipline is not to pay us back, but to bring us back as any good, perfect heavenly father would. It's staggering because it says something of God's amazing mercy and his amazing grace and his amazing kindness and his amazing love. But maybe God plays favorites. 
I don't know. Maybe God loved Abraham more than you. Maybe God loved the Israelites more than us, more than me. Maybe the rest of us have to behave to get in, and if we break the rules, then we're out. Maybe it's the club model for the rest of us, behave or, the behavior else model. Maybe it's the we can never know where we stand with God neighborhood association model. Now, here's the amazing thing. As you consider the starting point for faith, when God made the promise to Abraham that we looked at last week, and when God initiated his relationship with the nation of Israel that we looked at today, one thing is absolutely for certain when you read the narrative and you can go read it yourself. The thing that was for certain is that it was not ultimately about Abraham or about the nation of Israel. It was always about you. It was always about me. It was always about Everyone. And we know that, especially as we look back to look at the promise again that God made to Abraham that we looked at last week. Here's what he said All. A nation, not, not just the nation you're going to become, Abraham, but all. All the nations on earth will be blessed through you. Abraham, my ultimate purpose of establishing a nation through you is that through that nation, I'm going to begin restoring all humanity's relationship with me. Years later, through a Hebrew Israelite prophet named Isaiah, God once again told the nation of Israel, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. You know who the Gentiles are? Non-Jews. Everyone who's not a Jew. The rest of us. I will make you a light to the Gentiles. It, 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 you know, the Israelite nation. It's not just about you. You're going to be like a light in the darkness to the rest of the world. Well, why, God? That my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Abraham, Israel, as much as I love you, as much as I promise to you, as much as I've chosen you, it's so much bigger than you. This is about the entire world. God's plan, beginning with Abraham, always included us. It always included you. So we shouldn't be surprised to discover that when Jesus walked onto the scene 1,500 years later, after the Mosaic Law, after these Ten Commandments that are part of the Mosaic Law, he extended the same relational offer of salvation beyond the nation of Israel. The Apostle John, who was one of Jesus' closest friends, one of Jesus' closest followers, and saw all that Jesus did and followed all Jesus right from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, summarized it this way after looking back on his time with Jesus. He says, he, Jesus, came to that which was his own, the Israelite people, the Jewish people, but his own did not receive him. He said, Jesus came first to the nation that God chose to bless the world through, but they rejected him. Then he says this, yet to all who did receive him, Jesus, to those who behaved, nope, believed, trusted, put their faith in his name. He gave the right to become Club members? Neighborhood association members? Children of God.
family members. Saying to all who say, Jesus, I trust you are who you say you are and can do what you promised to do to restore my relationship with God, the relationship that my sin broke. To all who say, Jesus, I'm putting my trust in you, my faith in you, my confidence in you alone. He gives the right to become part of God's family, a, become a child of God. To which some would say, why should I even believe that? That Who does Jesus think he is that he can promise such a thing? And that's the question. And don't worry, we're getting there to the, in this series. But before we do, you need to first know that when it comes to the right starting point for faith with God, with Jesus, relationship precedes rules. God, Jesus, they opted for the family model. Now, we're going to pick it up there next week, but I quickly want to address two questions that I, I know that some of you are asking. First question is, why? Like, why does God give rules to those who have a relationship with him? Like, what's the purpose of the rules? Like, what role does his rules play? Okay. Parents. Do I need to say more than that word? Why do you give rules to your kids? You would not describe yourself as a perfect heavenly parent, yet you give rules. Why do you think that is? And we know we give rules to our kids because we love them. We want what's best for them and our relationship with them and our family. Why do we think our perfect heavenly father is any different than that? If I had to summarize the why, like why does he does, I'd say it in this way, for his glory and our benefit. Why does he give the rules? For his glory and our benefit. Your perfect heavenly father loves you. He wants what's best for you, and sin hurts you. He wants what's best for your relationship with him, and sin breaks relationship. And he wants what's best for one another, and sin hurts one another. Ultimately, he wants to be glorified through you and me. You've got to understand, though, rules are never a salvation issue. Let me say it again. Rules are never a salvation issue issue. Rules don't get you into the relationship. Obeying the rules doesn't keep you in the relationship. And disobeying doesn't take you out of the relationship. You've got to remember, rules are a confirmation of, not a condition of, relationship with God. So if you've never put your faith in Jesus, if you're kind of figuring this all out, I'm so glad you're trying to figure out the starting point. You've you got to know, though, you can have confidence that you can come as you are to God. You don't go bay your way into this thing. You don't rule your way into this thing. You come as you are. And if you are a follower of Christ, if you have put your faith in Jesus, you can have assurance that, that the rules don't make him love you more and the rules don't make him love you less. And once you put your faith in Jesus, you are now a child of God. And when your kids break the rules and when your kids obey the rules, those rules don't make you love, the, you love them more and they don't make you love them less, does it? No, it does not. The other question I know people are asking is, okay, what rules? Like, what are the rules? Like, which ones do I have to obey and how do I know? And I'm going to come back to this 
in kind of a little bit different way later in the series, actually in the last week of this series. But let me just tell you this right now for today. This is the wrong question. Because in a healthy relationship, you're not focused on the rules. In a healthy relationship, you're focused on the relationship. Our relationship with God isn't about obeying the rules better. Our relationship with God is about growing in our trust in him. It's about growing in a trust relationship with him. When you adopt the family model, you view God differently. You view God relationally, and when that happens, you want to trust him more. You want to grow in a relationship with him more. And I got to say this one last thing. I know I'm you know, at my time here, but I want to say this one last thing. You just got to know this before I go here. There is a rule maker, and it ain't you. And some of you have tried to be the rule maker. And you say, that's a sin, that's a sin, that's not a sin, I don't like that one, that, 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 that. And that one, that one keeps you out, that one gets you in, that one keeps you in, that one takes you out. And all you've done is hurt people. And all you've done is give them the wrong starting point. And made people abandon their faith and walk away from their faith and turn their back on faith. Maybe, unnecessarily. So that's where I'm going to stop today. But a few questions I want to give you to wrestle through this week before you come back next week. And your starting point groups, those of you who are in that, you're going to wrestle through them this week. T-Life groups, wrestle through them. Leaders, lead into this. Talk about them on the way home today, on the couch. Just wrestle through these little important part of the journey. Here's the first question for you to wrestle through this week. Up until now, how did you feel? I don't want this to be a theological question. So get out of your brain and get into your heart. Up to this point, how did you feel uh, up till now, did you feel how God relates with us is based on the family model, the club model, the neighborhood association model? Like, when you've thought about how God does and doesn't relate with you, like, how, did, how has it made you feel? Here's the second question. What would change if you really saw God as your perfect heavenly father and you as one of his children? How would it change in how you view God and how you assume God views you? How to change in how you relate to him and how you want to relate to him. And here's the third question. What rules have you assumed, have you believed, have you thought are required for a relationship with God? And how has that, that affected you or your faith or your view of God? What rules have you believed make or break a relationship with God? See, as we now know, if all this is true, the answer is none. No rules are required. However, as we're going to discover next week, someone who did something is. Let me pray. Uh, dear Lord, I thank you for being our perfect heavenly father who pursues us, who loves us, who waded into our mess, who's just working so dang hard to restore our relationship. And um, I thank you that you didn't make it about the rules because you made it very clear through the Israelite nation that that'll never work. Um, and so today and this week, I pray that we just are overwhelmed by your love for us, um, your pursuit of us, that you chase, you leave the 99 to chase after the one. We're amazed. Uh, thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.